Hi, this is ETF.com's Exchange Traded Fridays podcast, a weekly podcast covering developments in the ETF industry. My name is Sumit Roy, and I'm Senior ETF Analyst for ETF.com. This week, I'm talking with Alex Morris, co-founder of the U.S. Benchmark Series and co-portfolio manager of the funds as well. Alex, welcome to the show. Sumit, thanks for having me. So Alex, your firm is known for its single bond ETFs, but for people who are unfamiliar with them, can you explain what single bond ETFs are? Uh, Happy to. This will be perhaps a very unfulfilling explanation. They're just what it says on the tin. We focus on buying single bonds um, and is one bond per fund. um, And that, in this case, are on the run U.S. treasuries. And folks ask, well, why this specific bond? And the answer is, when we think of the yield curve, these are the actual traded securities that make up the yield curve. So they have a very important place in all of finance and anyone who's been a bond trader or allocated to bonds in their heart for a very long time. And the idea is pretty simple. This is what most large institutions buy, and they tend to do it through cash bonds and futures. That's surprisingly difficult to do. It's time consuming. And because these bonds are issued regularly, we stay on the run and we think that's where folks are best served being. And that really means that if you take, say, the 10-year bond, the government issues four of those a year. So if you bought it today, you know their next upcoming auction in a few weeks, you would hold the bond. And in three months, you would no longer hold the bond that makes up that point on the yield curve. So all of the things that you hear about the 10 years rates no longer apply to the bond you hold. And that's why most folks tend to roll to stay on that most recent point. It's where it's most liquid. It's where the behavior is most what you expect. And it's what you see on TV, as it were. Uh, And it tends to be an overall simpler experience to think about because you don't buy a 10-year bond with the intent of it making its way to become a a five-year and a three-year and a one-year bond, right? Which inevitably it will do you buy the 10-year bond for the qualities of a 10-year. Unless, of course, you actually have a certain liability you're trying to offset that will expire in exactly 10 years. But doing that is is hard. And if you think about the 10-year, that rolls four times a year. The two-year does that 12 times a year. And the 90-day T-bill, the thing you think of as the risk-free rate or what we trade under TBIL, that will trade 52 times a year. So if you were to try to stay on the run as an advisor or an individual, you've got to do an awful lot of work. And what we did was package that in ETF where you don't have to do that work. We focus on doing that. We do it well. Uh, we've done the math and shown that you know, almost all cases when you buy the bond from us right through, say, T-Bill or U2, you do better than actually rolling security or buying and holding it on a yield experience basis. And that's just a testament to if you focus on one thing and focus on doing it well you tend to be able to succeed there. Uh, and we've, we've implemented these products in a, I'll call, very straightforward way, which is a, a thoughtful implementation of simple. We tried to get rid of all of the things that normally get in the way of building good products, things that make it too complex, things that make it easy to get confused on or that are more academically interesting to us as traders, but not particularly helpful to an investor. And we we said no to all of those things. So what you get is a very pure expression of owning the on-the-run security without any of the hassle of doing it. That's fascinating. 
So you mentioned, Alex, some of the benefits of targeting these on-the-run treasury securities, things like liquidity, the simplicity. But the average investor listening, they might be thinking, I can kind of already, you know, get close to the 10-year bond by buying some of the bond ETFs that are out there that target, say, seven to 10-year treasuries. But that's obviously a little bit different than just owning the 10-year treasury. So can you kind of talk about the pros and cons of the two approaches, your approach, just the single 10-year versus a typical bond ETF that might own something like seven to 10-year treasuries? Sure. I, I think we have to first outline two relatively wonky in the Washington, D.C. sense of the word things. Um, but stick with me. It'll make sense. One is, what are those other funds with multiple treasury bonds doing? And they tend to be following an index. So you got to ask, well, why was that index created? Most of these indexes are fairly old, which is, is good news in that they're old and they have a lot of track record. The bad news is they weren't thoughtfully created for investors. They tend to follow the way the U.S. government looks at its debt. And the government will issue, say, in the court, say for that 10-year example, a seven-year bond and a 10-year bond. And every 10-year bond will eventually decay down to become a seven-year bond. And both of them will eventually make their way to zero and be repaid. But the government thinks of things between seven and 10 years, not because there's any magic to that number, but because they just don't happen to issue an eight, eight and a half, nine or nine and a quarter year bond. So they, they group all of these into the tenure and the, the age of bonds that they have. And they tend to be weighted based upon how much of that bond is in issuance. Well, very few of us have ever said the government spending habits are a good way to follow and proxy our investments. So if you look at, say, the long bonds today, the, the 20 to 30 year, there's a, a massive sort of mountain of maturity around 27 years out. And that's not because we all want to own 27-year bonds. That's because about three years ago, the government gave out a tremendous amount of stimulus payments, and it needed to finance that. So it did the, I'll gladly give you a hamburger today for payment on Tuesday, and said, hey, well, how about that Tuesday be 30 years from now? Well, that was three years ago. And that large slug of bonds is going to work its way through you know, to the end of the 20 years and then to the intermediate funds and eventually to the short end funds as they have to buy, generally speaking, just about every bond that's been issued in that age. Now, the other question is, well, if I'm buying from the Treasury, why would I buy more than one bond, right? In general, we have a diversification among who issues our debt, right? We, you buy a bunch of different stocks, a bunch of different bonds. You don't buy a bunch of different flavors from the same company because if that company were to have trouble, they just wouldn't repay their bonds. It wouldn't matter how many different flavors you had sort of thing. So why would you diversify across, say, seven to 10 years when you could just buy the seven like we offer through USVN or the 10 through U10? And if you're trying to, if you're just trying to get exposure to that time period, that's a fine way to do it. But most folks don't say, well, I want exposure to roughly this government accounting principle section of the yield curve. They tend to want to point on the curve or they tend to want to buy something in that space because they know the exact qualities of it. And those other types of funds don't necessarily do that. They don't target a duration or a maturity or a coupon rate. They just buy what's out there in the proportion it was issued because that's the mandate. And for some qualities, there's a lot of good to be said for that. But realistically, if you're trying to deliver an experience to an, an investor or to your portfolio, you tend to want to know exactly the inputs, right? We don't do a lot of research or most folks don't 
log on to these webcasts to listen to have then someone say, well, you did all this, these hours of work, but three years is close enough. We might as well just do it. Uh, we tend to think folks want more control. They want a better understanding of why they're getting this exact experience. And more importantly, why would you buy a bunch of bonds decaying at, at a set rate that have a lower coupon and less liquidity? You might as well keep those or if you keep the current coupon, which admittedly none of us can control, you at least might as well maintain the benefit of being in the most liquid version of that security, where if you change your mind, you're not going to pay a huge premium to sell. But unfortunately, many bonds that go off the run tend to now have a, a massive liquidity drop. And that doesn't mean you can't sell them. It just means that you're unlikely to sell them for the exact price that you're used to seeing marked by your custodian every day. And we find that investors don't tend to think of that as a problem until they try to liquidate their bond portfolio and walk away with less money than they thought they had. And very fewer are happy with that experience. That's great. It certainly seems like, Alex, that these are more liquid products, that they offer more precision than other bond ETFs, which is interesting because when these products first came out, a lot of the news articles were talking about how they're only for sophisticated investment strategies, but they seem to hold up well against other bond ETFs, even for vanilla exposure to treasuries, long-term buy and hold type of strategies. Isn't that right? It is. And when, when we first launched this, I think many folks looked at us and, and rightfully so, uh, you know, said this is for the curve nerds and we, we didn't disagree with them. We are curve nerds. It was a product built by us ultimately to answer some of the demand we had from our own clientele for a better, more uniform experience. And you know, if you think about the average advisor or investor who has an account at Fidelity and Schwab, say, you're not going to get the same price on that bond, even if you buy it at the same moment. That was a frustration for us. And we do have a view on where the yield curve is and should be going and how we're going to position folks there, as well as other clients who have very specific maturity or duration or some of those other technical measures that we would like to keep them within very narrow bands. But even if you're an individual investor you know, who just wants to access that 5% plus yield on the short end of the curve, T-bill, X-bill, and O-bill, which are the 90-day, the six-month, and the 12-year, uh, sorry, 12-month product, are just fine ways to do that. If you were to go to Treasury Direct and buy a 90-day or a six-month or a 12-month security, you'd ultimately try to buy just what we're buying for you. And then as opposed to just waiting for that to mature or repeating that, say every quarter or every half year, or every year, we just do that in real time for you. So think of a ladder, but as opposed to a rung starting at the top and working its way to the bottom, and then you having to remember to put it all the way back to the top and deal with all the hassle of setting everything up, we do it for you and the rungs just stay exactly in place. And the reason why we, we think that approach makes more sense is, although we're all used to seeing the yield curve as a whole, right? That sort of famous now camel looking thing with two humps in it and you know, lots of talk about pivot points and inversion or double inversion, all sorts of things that, that for most folks don't much matter other than I want exposure to this yield and I want it from the government. If you look, if you were to zoom in, and doing you know, like one of those movie 60,000 foot uh, ground level, you know, reviews pretty quickly, you'd actually see there's a little teeny plateau right around where the on the run securities are. So each of those major points that we draw a nice clean curve through are actually much noisier. There are a lot of bonds along the way that make that up. But when we stay right on the run and sort of one or two generations older, it's actually like a little shelf. And that allows us to 
maintain high liquidity, but also maintain pricing power for our end investors. If you start to go off that, the spreads widen and the price starts to deviate with much more volatility than what folks are used to. So no matter who you are, if you're in the treasury market, even if you're a sophisticated investor who could do this on his or her own and sees it as a convenience, or an individual investor just looking for a place to either get exposure to a specific part of the yield curve, or just clip you know, some short end high coupon rates right now and high yield, they work just the same. They weren't, just, there's, no, there's no severe magic behind the scenes. As we said before, we, we work very hard to get rid of all of those more you know, complicated, sophisticated ways to give folks this exposure because they were there. We know how to do them and we've been asked by others to do them and we do that in institutional accounts. But for most people, what you really want is the cash bond. And what you really want is to just not have to deal with the peculiarities and difficulties of bond math and bond trading and settlement and clearing and worrying about, did you get the right price? And then remembering to set an alarm on your phone or an outlook that says in so many days, make sure to go that this settled and then reinvest and do all this other stuff. We just want to take all that out and give folks a straightforward exposure to U.S. rates, give them the ability to do what all institutional investors do. Now you can buy the bond, which is basically buying the yield. You could short it, which is hoping that rates go up. So the price of the bond goes down. And then you can mix and match these to recreate just about any of those multi-bond funds that are out there. But as opposed to the characteristics of that fund varying over time, as the constituencies of those indices have to vary based on the government's past behavior, you get exactly what you thought you got on the first day. And we stay right there. Plus or minus, you know, the sort of movements that happen intra-day or intra-week, right? If the government issues a 10-year bond every quarter, we can only buy it every quarter. But same, same story holds. And as you get to the short end of the curve, you know, T-bill or X-bill or O-bill, that's where it really matters. You know, if you're buying a 30-year bond and you miss by a basis point or two, you've got a lot of duration on that bond that kind of makes up for it. But if you, it sort of takes it and divides that effect. But on the short end, if you miss by a basis point, that effect is amplified because you're going to have to do that same trade multiple times per year to get that same effective yield. And that's why we spend a lot of time and energy making sure the trades are, are high quality. The fund never pays for liquidity. And we do our best to minimize all those costs. And, and we've done that to the level where in the case of say U2, if you were to roll this on your own and pay the spread across doing that, our entire year's worth of trading would be covers itself and one trade most people would make on the street. And as you get to T-bill and others, that tends to be true as well. And it's why we're, you know, the way we position the fund is we're not trying to just do this for free. We're not trying to be a utility. We're trying to be a high quality execution, the same time and care that everyone would put into his or her own portfolio or his or her parents' portfolios, as we're often fond of saying, and deliver that in a very simple way. And we think that so far, we've delivered on that mission and we show up to work every day um, with the effort of trying to do that same thing and continuing that mission. That's fantastic. And what you're doing certainly seems to be resonating with investors. T-Bill, which you mentioned a little earlier, T-B-I-L, became the first single bond ETF to surpass $1 billion in assets under management in less than a year. That's really, really impressive. So Alex, do you have any 
um, insight into who is using these products? Is it institutions, primarily advisors, retail investors even? It's a little bit of everyone. Uh, the biggest concentrations we, we believe to be in the advisor intermediary community uh, and then individual investors. Um, we, the institutional space is starting to come on stronger now. Uh, most of them you know, took a pause when we were new and we were not just a new fund. We were a new issuer. We were a new idea. We were a new thing in the ETF bond world. So it, was, it made sense for some of the bigger institutions to take a, a pause and ask, hey, is this, this thing even going to work? Um, but now that it has worked and we crossed over a billion in TBIL and the whole series, all 10 now, so all the major U.S. benchmarks, so over 2 billion, uh, we're approaching 2.1 actually, as you and I are talking today. It's, um, I think, uh, established itself as a, an important part of the ecosystem. And now we see more institutions coming in and we see more institutions and more sophisticated investors doing interesting things with the ETFs. We're one of the few issuers that's really excited when someone tells us they shorted our security. Most folks are worried about that, but our answer is that's exactly what we designed this to do. It's a tool set for all investors to get access to the same capabilities that institutional investors get. And for institutional investors, it's in a way to access exactly what they're doing today, but without having to do all the work. And so, for example, today you've got, you know, say, Bill Ackman, who's been out talking about how he's shorting the 30-year. That's a practically very difficult thing for most people to do. You'd have to, you can't natively short a treasury. So now you have to short a future or an option on a future. Each of them has leverage in it and it's multiplied by $1,000 a point. And of course, since it's bonds, it's not 100 points to anything. There's 32 points to it. So you have to go through all this math and then realize you, you're really moving hundreds of thousands of dollars per contract and that's a, it's a lot of juice for people. And the pricing on that on a single contract isn't nearly as good as you might expect for institutional investors who do it in size. So it's hard to do. But now you could just short UTHY and you'll get the exact same trade. You could disagree. You could, you could take the Warren Buffett approach, who's pro-treasuries, and you could buy TBIL, XBIL, and OBIL and get the same general exposures that he and his team are getting today but without having to buy 20 or 30 securities and enlist an army of professional traders to get the same execution quality. And that's what we wanted to do, give folks the full opportunity set. And then the options market makers came along and have started providing a listed options market. So if that's your flavor and you wanna you know, take a different view into the treasury market or express yourself a different way, you now have that capability as well. That's awesome. Uh, so it certainly is a tool and uh, people seem to be using it. I'm glad you brought up Ackman, Buffett. A lot of people seem to have very different takes when it comes to treasuries and interest rates, where we're going from here. You mentioned a little bit earlier, Alex, how you guys do have a view on the yield curve. Um, could you get into that? Because, you know, the Fed seems to be nearing the end of its rate hiking cycle, yet just over the past week or two, the 10-year and the 30-year bond yields have been just taking off. What's going on? Yeah, I mean, I think for a long time, we've we've been clear to take the Fed at its word. This was a very different view, right? And the timing was different. It, we forget the Fed is a semi-political animal to some extent. And if you were to go back in time, and our friend Mark Spindell wrote a whole book on this called The Myth of Independence with uh, his writing partner, Sarah Binder. But it basically, you see a very nice trend. Every time there's a 
financial issue that exists in the, particularly the US markets, but not the world markets. The Fed steps in and sort of finds a way to extend some of its existing capabilities to stem the crisis. And they need to because they can act with more data faster than the Congress can. But then afterwards, Congress comes around and tends to enshrine that power uh, to the Fed, but also then adds a little more congressional oversight to what's going on there. And that necessarily politicizes things. So the last few go-rounds that we had, you know, debt ceiling crisis, very clearly the Fed tried to stay out of politics, but didn't have much choice. You know, the delay in hiking rates when it was clear it needed to happen was very much around a presidential election cycle. Um, so now the Fed is kind of in the clear for a little while. So it's doing exactly what it should do, stamping out inflation, not at all costs, but at, at some cost, because it appreciates that long term, that inflation running away from us or reducing rates too soon would be much, much worse. So we think the Fed's think they're on the right path there. They made clear they're getting to the end, and I think it's fair to continue to take them at their word. Whether they have another zero, 25, or 50 basis points in them, 25 feels good, 50 maybe a little, little high, but not out of the question. But they want to see those numbers turn around, and they will get us there. But then the question becomes, well, why are the 10-year and the 30? Why is the long end of the curve taking off? And I think it comes down to, for the yield curve to return to that more normal, traditional, you know, nice sort of slope up and to the right with a sort of curve to it means that either the short end has to come down dramatically, which would mean taking rates down fast. As we just said, the Fed's made clear it's not intending to do that. Or the middle and the long end of the curve has to have to start to creep up. And I think that's what you see happening. That plus a combination of, for a long time, the 10-year rate, the, you know, in the longer bonds had been held down by not the Fed, but the Japanese central bank. And the fact that they've stopped controlling the 10-year Japanese, uh, the JGB, Japanese government bond, has allowed other rates across the globe to actually sort of normalize themselves. We got rid of a, the boat anchor holding everything down. So what you're seeing is a kind of natural reaction to that. As money piles in, you'll see those rates start to come back down or slow down their, their ascent. But that's not a, an unhealthy thing. In the long run, 10-year rates being at 4% is actually pretty normal. It's actually a little bit on the low side of normal. But for a long while, most folks are, not most, but many folks who are trading today are used to seeing extended periods of choose your flavor of zero anywhere across the yield curve or rate height cycles that, very, that went up and then very quickly came back down. But this, this time feels different. And I don't mean that in the every time is different. This time the Fed has made clear things are different. There's different economic factors at play. They're very much looking to end inflation. The economy is robust. You know, that by the same token, we could talk a bit about the Fitch downgrade from AAA to AA plus earlier this week. And I think the market has kind of rightfully so shrugged that off as sort of like who cares, right? That many institutions are required by law to hold treasuries. That didn't change. The Treasury still is the benchmark for everything that happens in the world. You know, the same token, folks talk about the de-dollarization, the end of dollar hegemony, which I think is most folks just wanting to use the word hegemony and sound fancy. Mm -hmm. But the reality is what, what underpins the dollar and the Treasuries themselves are the rule of law and order that we have. And there's really not a, a good close second place to the U.S. in the global scheme of things with any size or capability to prop up the global economy. So as a result, I think it's fair to say you're going to see that. It's going to run. It's a little bit. That's okay. 
uh, long run, that's probably where it needs to be. But the Fed appreciates all of these factors, I'd argue, and is working hard to get us back to normal. But I think they appreciate normal. It's going to look a little different than the last decade or two. It's going to look a little more normal in the last century or so. And it's going to take us a few years to settle out to that. What the Fed hates to do, they made it very clear, are these sudden changes in direction of policy. It exposes them to you know, all, all sorts of criticism that tends to be right in that moment, but maybe a little short-sighted in the long run. They really just want to control this thing nice and slowly. They appreciate the American economy is still humming along. And it's, it's kind of funny. A lot of commentators will complain these numbers aren't coming down. But if you wound the tape back on them two, three years ago, they were just as clearly and, and ardently opining for a strong, robust economy. Well, this is what one looks like. When you have a strong, robust economy, people are employed. Capital is, is sourceable. May not be as sourceable as cheaply as it was before, but it's still sourceable. And companies are still trucking along just fine. And you've seen that. It may be a little bit of earnings shakiness, a little bit of reallocation to the biggest companies are continuing to get bigger. But that's also because NVIDIA, Microsoft, Google tend to be tremendous innovators and engines for new creativity and high efficiency. And they're doing it at a level we haven't seen. And now you enter this sort of public policy realm where the Fed has to work very hard to not stifle all of this creativity, but at the same time, stamp out the thing that will destroy the consumer, which is this hidden 6 or 8% inflation. They're on their way of getting it down. Real inflation rates now are the sort of true inflation numbers are in the twos. You know, they are going to get that number lower and you're going to see the headline numbers come not exactly, I think, to where they want them to be by the end of the year, but they're going to get much closer where the Fed can then say, okay, we're not just ending a cycle, but we're now shifting gears. Like we've stemmed the, the bleeding. Now we're going to go to carrying on with the surgery and getting the patient off the table. And that's going to take some time. It, I think you've got six months or so before they can start to make that noise. If they start making that noise too early, the stock market tends to run away from them. The bond market gets a little too excited. So they have to do this, this fine balance of what they know lots of other folks are saying they want to agree with and what they can actually agree with today for fear of things getting too hot too fast and undoing all of the work they've done. Great insights, Alex. Certainly seems like inflation is headed in the right direction, but rates might have to stay longer, uh, higher for longer. And that's what we're seeing the treasury market starting to reflect before I let you go, Alex, I, I want to go back to your products and talk about the future of your company. Right now, you have a bunch of ETFs targeting different points along the yield curve. What do you expect in terms of future product launches? And is there any chance that you might launch single bond ETFs tied to non-treasuries, like something like Apple bonds, anything like that? So as you said earlier, we're known for launching the single treasuries. We hope uh, by next year, you folks know us for being creative um, in the fixed income space and beyond, uh, and certainly beyond just treasuries. Uh, in September, we have a, our first corporate credit ETF coming out. It's based on a strategy. And my co-creator of the, the benchmark series, Pete Baden, has been running for a long time. Uh, it's been highly regarded. Um, so that's going to be our first foray into the corporate space. We've got a few others um, planned that will do that. We've got some interesting you know, treasuries, but not single treasury plays that folks have, have brought to our attention that we're vetting through and look forward to launching the end of, of this year as well. Uh, and then we'll try to, you know, sort of do this again and reimagine some of the indices across the fixed income space. 
um, before we turn our attentions to equities. And we've got some great partners and affiliates who, who are great in the equity space who you know, come up and said, hey, it's our turn for some attention too. Uh, so we'll look forward to doing, doing that. As far as single bonds in the corporate space, unfortunately the answer is no. Um, the ETF rules require us to be diversified over at least five different securities. There's some weighting restrictions around that. So we might offer a very concentrated mix of issuers, um, but we won't be able to offer a single issuer ETF in that sense. M folks ask, well, why can you do this one? And the rules for an ETF are oddly enough, not run by the SEC entirely. There's a, a little bit of their cousins, the IRS, who determine what could be an ETF. And the IRS made an exception. It says you can hold one and only one security if as long as that issuer is their boss, the US Treasury Department. And um, so we were able to avail ourselves of that to deliver this product. But unfortunately, uh, we're gonna need to be a little more creative in how we provide more targeted exposure in the, the corporate and the muni space. But, but fear not, we're working on it. And you should look forward to hearing some more from us over the course of the autumn as we prepare to launch those. Fantastic. Well, Alex, looking forward to everything you have coming down the pipeline. We're going to have to leave it there. Thanks so much for coming on the show and sharing your insights with us. Listeners, I hope you enjoyed this episode. You can find this and all other Exchange Traded Fridays episodes on ETF.com or on any major podcast platform. See you next week.